0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited... Two well-known Princeton alumni at last reveal the true inside story of how they got caught up in, and nearly done in by, the CIA's LSD-laced deep hypnosis research while they were Princeton students in the late 1960s.
2: Under hypnosis, they would play with me in terms of uh, having me become uh, uh, other people. I think once they turned me into Bob Dylan for a few hours. Once they turned me into George Harrison. I was walking around the Institute as George Harrison. I mean, yeah out of my mind i was under hypnotic condition you don't remember it you it's it's very real to you when you're experiencing it This episode is brought to you by Logo Creator 7 Software. These days, it's
1: more important than ever to have a good image, especially if you have a small business or you sell stuff online or even post on social media. But quality graphics can cost money, and advanced software like Photoshop can take time to learn. That's why I want to tell you about some amazing piece of software called Creator 7. Creator 7 is so easy to use yet it lets you create super looking logos, business cards character mascots, you name it in just minutes. Whatever you create is going to look super cool and impressive Creator 7 comes with hundreds of ready made templates just click and drag to make changes and instantly you have really impressive graphics right on your computer. Now, some clever folks have ordered the Creator 7 software to start their own logo making business. Creating and selling logos and graphics for a profit. That's how good it is. But you won't believe the price. Creator 7 creates beautiful logos and designs right on your computer and works on either PC or Mac. And right now, it's available at an amazing price. To see it in action, just visit RadioShowLogo.com. That's RadioShowLogo.com. RadioShowLogo.com.
0: Here's Richard Serrett.
1: I hope wherever you are, you're well. Hope you're managing to avoid the flu and some of these nasty viruses that uh, circulate this time of year. Now, I'll tell you, one of the benefits of homeschooling is that my little guys are not in close quarters with other children for eight hours a day. I don't mean to say they don't get to play with other children. Here come the emails. You homeschoolers are horrible parents. You don't let your children associate with other kids in public schools. No, no. My my boys are very well socialized. They have organized play days and they play hockey and tennis with other children. But the point is, since we removed them from public school, they just don't get sick anymore. And uh, as a result, neither do I or the the mighty Aphrodite. But I'll tell you, in previous years, I used to get terrible colds uh, be, uh, because of, uh, you know, mutated viruses our children would bring home. And I remember one winter, I had a terrible cold. And my sister, who's a nurse, offered me some cold medication. It's called cold effects. I'm sure it's great stuff. People swear by it. I don't know if it helped my cold. But I'll tell you what happened. That night, after I took cold effects, I suffered a horrible panic attack. Lying in bed and I felt the room was closing in on me and I couldn't breathe and my heart was pounding. And I literally, I had to leave the house at like two o'clock in the morning in my pajamas in the middle of a snowstorm. There I was on the driveway, doubled over, taking deep breaths until this panic attack subsided. Uh, So the point is, I don't do well on medication or drugs, never have. So I can't imagine... Taking LSD. I can't imagine, even microdoses. Uh, but uh, Paul Jeffrey Davids and his colleague and co author John Selby did exactly that back in the late 1960s while they were attending Princeton University. Uh, unknowingly, they were involved in a CIA sponsored mind control experiment. And that's where we're going for the next 40 minutes or so. Paul is the co-author of six Star Wars books for Lucasfilm. He was production coordinator and a writer of the original animated Transformers TV series. Executive producer of Showtime's Roswell, the UFO cover-up. And he's produced and directed 10 feature films, including The Sci-Fi Boys and The Life After Death Project, and also the biopic Timothy Leary's Dead. He's also an accomplished artist and a pretty fine magician.
2: Paul Davids, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Richard, I'm feeling fine, and uh, I think it's going to be very unlimited tonight. Blowing America's
1: mind. First of all, the the title actually lifted from a headline from the 1977 uh, edition of the Los Angeles Times. Explain.
2: Uh, that's, that's right. Uh, in 1977, the CIA's secret mind control project, MK Ultra, which was a, a, actually about 150 projects, it was exposed for the first time. And there were a lot of editorials and uh, write-ups, reports and opinions about what was discovered then. And the Los Angeles Times had an editorial with the headline, The CIA blowing america's mind well my co-author on this book which takes that name blowing america's mind my co-author john selby and i had been looking for the right title for this book for many 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 years i think we tried 20 different titles and it was john selby who finally said that's our title blowing america's mind
1: and and the import of that headline uh, Explain how the quote, once again, this nation confronts how to prevent its powerful secret intelligence agency from becoming a threat to the very freedoms they were established to protect.
2: Well, what was discovered in 1977 and what shocked John Selby and I so much at that point, we had been, while we were students at Princeton in the late 1960s, volunteers at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute, which was experimenting then in deep hypnosis and LSD research, psychedelic research. And at that time, we had no idea that a substantial part of the funding came from the CIA or that what we were participating in was part of MKUltra. We learned it about 10 years later when MK Ultra was exposed for the first time and the doctors in our program were mentioned and specifically the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute which was in Skillman, New Jersey, a short drive from Princeton. We were both psychology majors at the time. It was an absolutely fascinating project and we decided soon after that we just had to tell our story. We had to record it, write it, preserve it for posterity. But, Richard, it has just taken decades, uh, half a lifetime or more, for us to complete the book and then finally decide it was safe to come out with it. But it, it's, it's a very um, personal account of what actually happened to us when we were there. And what Princeton was like at that time, you know, one of the greatest universities in the nation, it was still an all-male school.
1: I hadn't realized that until I read this, that that it didn't go co-ed until, what, just shortly after you graduated.
2: I graduated in 1969, and in the fall of 1969, women were admitted for the first time. The texture of Princeton has just changed completely since we were there. And one of the things that our book does is to capture the flavor of that all-male institution. You know, the ambience of it is so much of what was important to us. Uh, Richard, I want to compare it for a moment to another book about the 1960s, which has become one of the classics, uh, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test Mm. by Tom Wolfe. Do you know that book? Oh, of course. Required reading in college. It is. And it's it's the story of what happened to Ken Kesey, who was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. From
1: The Merry Pranksters.
2: Yes, and and John Selby and I always felt that uh, our experience at the New Jersey Neuropsych Institute was very much like a real life, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> I want to tell you about the psychiatrists who ran the program and what they were doing to us and what their goals were and all of that. But one of the things that Tom Wolfe said, um, because he didn't live the travels with Ken Kesey in the bus that they called further, the psychedelic bus uh, back when Ken Kesey was giving out acid and Kool-Aid throughout the country right. just uh, about two years before LSD was declared illegal in 1966 right. Tom Wolfe said that what was so important to him was to give the, the flavor of it all of those times as if you were really living it and of course we can relive it today through that book My goal and John Selby's goal for blowing America's mind was very, very similar. We wanted to put you inside our skin in the late 1960s and have you live this with us. It was by no means a smooth ride. I mean, we discovered the psychedelics through the New Jersey Neuropsych Institute. We were sort of under the wing of a very famous pioneer in that field. Dr. Dr. Humphrey Osmond. I'm Free Osmond, who came from Saskatchewan, uh, Canada, originally England. Right, right. But he had been practicing with, I think, uh, Albert Hoffer in Saskatchewan. And as early as the early 1950s, he had discovered uh, the psychedelics. He took peyote with Native Americans up there and wrote about it. He began to study the similarities between the schizophrenic mind states and the dissimilarities between madness and um, the psychedelic state of consciousness.
1: Didn't he, in fact, coin the term psychedelic?
2: It's it's his invention, psychedelic. In fact, you know, he, he, he came to the United States and he set up shop at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. He, he ran the Bureau of Research there and he befriended the great philosopher, uh, writer aldous huxley mm. who is probably most famous for the book the brave new world and he is the one that uh, persuaded aldous huxley to try mescaline which is the active ingredient of peyote and to be guided on a psychedelic trick trip and uh, then uh, huxley wrote the book the doors of perception
1: right he called it soma right
2: well uh There's a debate about what Soma was in ancient times. Soma was the legendary holy sacrament drug that goes back to the days of the early Hindus. Yes, and in Brave New World, he took that term, Mm -hmm. Soma, and used that. Um, From his book, The Doors of Perception, well, that's where the group, the rock group, The Doors, gets its name. He, He felt like it was opening the doors of his mind that he was uh, beholding the world fresh like a newborn. And his book was extremely uh, influential. And this was before uh, college students, uh, it was before the hippies. It was before the spread of psychedelics which spread like wildfire and created what we call the psychedelic movement of the late 1960s, which had its high points and its disastrous points. But John Selby and I were caught right in the middle of it in that academic environment with the man who was at the beginning and center of that research. And then also Timothy Leary came into the picture. Sure, I, I filmed a biography of Timothy Leary. That's right. Uh, called Timothy Leary's Dead. It was really big at the Toronto Film Festival mm-hmm. for one year. Um, so I got to know Leary later, but at that time it was Osmond and his partner um, Bernard Aronson, Bernie <laughs> Aronson, who was a psychologist, a master hypnotist. And they were enlisting college students um, and some who were uh, not in school to be uh, paid a small salary to come into the Institute a couple times a week and undergo deep hypnosis. And what they advertised it was going to be and what it turned out to be were two completely different things. And our discovery of that and our experience of it and the, the tremendous uh, psychological anguish that my partner uh john selby went through as a result of it are are all there in blowing america's mind and we should
1: Uh, point out that the the hypnosis sessions were were mingled with micro doses of lsd sometimes they were yes
2: Ah. not every session but sometimes they were and uh i would never know when or when it was or when it wasn't
1: did you and and selby know each other uh prior or did you actually meet as part of the experiment
2: We met as part of the experiment. Uh, He was uh, a Princeton student, a little older than I was, um, and he had been a hypnotic subject for a year before I got involved, and they were talking then about elevating him to be a staff hypnotist. You know, a great concern of college students at that time was the military draft. It was compulsory, and it was... When the Vietnam War was really uh, heating up, uh, John Selby had no interest in becoming a military man. And it was held out to him that if he took a job as a full-time hypnotist at the Institute the following year, that he would be given a a military deferment um, or Bernie could get him a military deferment from the draft on the basis that the work they were doing was in the national interest. Well, this should have raised some questions and alarms for us then. I mean, why was it in the national interest? Exactly. The manipulations that were involved in this hypnosis um, actually became uh, pretty frightening. It was really a two-edged sword, uh, Richard. Uh, I don't want to paint it as all dark because it it wasn't.
1: What was Dr. Osmond and his team trying to achieve with these experiments? What, What was the whole point of it?
2: These men were really interested in cataloging um, the perceptual differences between schizophrenia, madness, as they say, and the psychedelic state, which they often describe as expanded consciousness, uh, expanded awareness of the of the senses. And they found that by manipulating, our perceptions of things like time, depth perception, um, space, our size, um, taking us through out-of-body experiences using hypnosis. They studied the behavior that they instilled in us and felt that they were learning about uh, more about uh, schizophrenia through artificially inducing those states, and learning more about what they called uh, hypnotic analogs to the psychedelic state.
1: I, I am curious about the the hypnosis uh, sessions uh, because <clears throat> typically in hypnosis there are, you know there are supposed to be strict protocols, and I get the sense that maybe those were being violated while while you were under hypnosis.
2: Well, they had their own protocols, and they included um, extensive memory erasure of what happened during the conditions, and they were supposed to restore memory of everything at at the end, after you'd gone through months of deep hypnosis, and and part of what comes out in the book is how John Selby, especially, because he'd been at it much longer and more deeply than I had, um, felt that there was never a complete erasure of conditions that he was under. And because of that, would have flashbacks from them. And one of the effects of those was the fact that he was a champion Ivy League uh, fencer. Right. And uh, he, um, he found that the effect of that on his uh, fencing um, was uh, catastrophic. And, and he had been, I think, number four in the nation as a fencer up to a certain point. And then uh, things uh, you know collapsed. And it was very connected to what was going on at the Institute at the same time. LSD was becoming popular on the Princeton uh, campus, and so was uh, marijuana. The laws in New Jersey at that time were very, very, very strict uh, on marijuana.
1: Oh, in many parts and, of the country. Dr. Timothy Leary was threatened with 10 years in prison
2: for possession of, of a single joint. It's it's absolutely frightening when you look at it, and and I want to talk about how the world, you know, has changed and how it hasn't changed uh, today. But I mentioned Ken Kesey before, uh, who was one of the very promising um, American novelists at that time. I mean, th- I think he was in his mid twenties when he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. and then he wrote Sometimes a Great Notion. And LSD was legal back then, up until 1964. But the feds went after him on marijuana possession. And they got him twice on that, and he faced years in prison. I think because they got him twice, he faced five years in prison, and he fled to Mexico. Eventually, he snuck back into the United States, and he was captured, and he went through the whole legal process. There were multiple trials against him, and we're talking about simple possession, uh, Richard. For for many of us today, by today's standards, it's inconceivable— uh, the extent of persecution over marijuana. Uh, and in the United States, I think in 29 states now, it's legal for medical purposes. In some of the states, it's simply legal, period. Uh, in other states, uh, it's uh, still prosecuted. And in the federal books, uh, it's still a class one drug. Unbelievable. No distinction. Right. No distinction from heroin, and you know you've got to ask yourself. It's you talk about schizophrenia. Hmm. Let's talk about sociological schizophrenia. Well, it was only uh, maybe
1: a hundred years ago where doctors come to the house with their little black bag, and in, in all of those little black bags it was a vial of cannabis oil. It was seen as a as a sure. as a cure all.
2: Sure, and as we look at the history of the persecution now. We know that protecting the cotton industry had a lot to do with the votes to make marijuana illegal in the first place. And it was also convenient for suppressing certain populations um, that were um, suppressed. You know, the black population, the Latino population tended to smoke that, use it more than the whites. But, you know, back in those days, and it was a device of – Keeping people under control, let's say. But the fact that the laws federally haven't changed, and yet uh, much of the country is living in a different world from that, It, in my opinion here, this is, you know, my feeling, this has to be addressed and changed, because it creates such an incredible disrespect for uh, the law itself. It, it, it's not respected. And it's... It, it, Again, it's just opinion. It's wrong. It's wrong. We're living in this uh, completely dysfunctional society, you know, a, a house that wars with itself cannot stand. Isn't that the saying? Well, the, like the, that.
1: The, the the war on drugs is declared by, by Nixon has been an abject um, failure beyond a <laughs> miserable failure. Paul Jeffrey Davids, my guest, the co-author of Blowing America's Mind. You know what else blows my mind? pair networks if you're looking for world-class website hosting at a fair price there's a company i want to tell you about pair networks pair networks hosts hundreds of thousands of websites and why do i recommend them simply because they set the standard for excellence with a technical support staff that's second to none their support team responds so quickly, and they always give straight answers, and that's important. Plus, they have top-of-the-line technology. That's why Pair Networks offers total reliability for your website with a money-back guarantee. So whether you're a professional web designer, a busy web marketer, or you're just getting a site online, Pair Networks has a website hosting plan that's right for you. Log on and learn more at pair.com. Let me spell it out for you. P-A-I-R dot com. P-A-I-R Pair Networks.
0: If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited. <laughs> With Richard Serrett.
1: Paul Jeffrey Davids, my guest, the co-author of Blowing America's Mind. It was interesting you mentioned Selby's experience. Uh, and uh, certainly one of the negative impacts was uh, that it impaired his his memory. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and later it was shown that uh, that was one of the, I guess, one of the purposes of, of MK Ultra was that the U.S. intelligence groups could then um, go to retired agents and, and erase certain parts of their memories in order to protect, I guess, state secrets. Uh, it was one of
2: their goals. Yeah. We've got a lot of uh, old clippings in the book that uh, document even the headline from the New York Times where the CIA tells Columbia and Princeton of the secret behavioral research that was going on on their universities that the administrators may not have uh, known about.
1: Paul, when did various intelligence groups first become interested in hallucinogens?
2: It was really early in the discovery of those drugs in the Western world that the cia came in with an intense uh interest and it all happened very slowly i mean for for a very long time it was considered just a myth that there were these magic mushrooms in mexico because um those who knew about the mushrooms weren't revealing them to uh, you know they weren't disseminating the information it was largely kept secret. A man named Gordon Wasson first experienced the mushrooms in Mexico um, and uh, uh, the word began to trickle out from him. LSD uh, discovered by Albert Hoffman in uh, Switzerland. Uh, He's also the one who later decoded the chemical structure of psilocybin, hmm. the active ingredient in the magic mushrooms. But in the early 1950s, when Humphrey Osmond was getting involved in this research, um, the government was looking at this for the first time, certainly LSD. And they wondered, you know, would it be useful as a truth serum or would it be, you know – Would it be useful to break people down? I mean, it was all the dark, the negative, the military aspects of using it for manipulation, which is – I don't know if the right word is tragic, but uh, many books have been written showing that uh, these psychedelic drugs – it means mind manifesting – They are used as sacraments in certain religions. They have been for years, and they they uh, the the, uh, peyote, the flesh of the gods. It's it's called, and the feeling that the elevation of consciousness that can come in some experiences under the right circumstances from the psychedelic drugs that these uh, open the mind and bring on a kind of mystical sense of oneness uh that opens up many people to a, a a what they feel is a religious experience let's say sure
1: and, and and you you speak of microdosing there's been a bit of a resurgence in in that and it is being shown now to uh, incredible things with uh combating depression
2: and they're studying the use of psychedelics um to aid people who, who are in hospice let's say
1: yes Yes, end of... People uh, end who of, don't have
2: long to live.
1: End of life anxiety. Yes, Ald- at U- UCLA... Ald- uh, Aldous,
2: I was going to say Aldous Huxley went out on uh, LSD, which is something Timothy Leary talked about in uh, the film I made on him. And for those too young to remember, he was massively influential back in the 1960s in proselytizing uh, LSD and the psychedelics. And the proselytizing that brought it out into the open... And soon resulted in its spreading, so that millions of people were having these experiences. This was something I think the literature shows that the CIA absolutely never intended, or never wanted. You know, this was this was to be a secret among the elite, but Leary was the one that set it loose on the rabble, let's say. Hmm. And then there was there was Owsley. His full name was uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley. And uh, he introduced himself to Ken Kesey, expecting Kesey to know him because he was the manufacturer of millions of tabs of LSD. Hmm. He was the biggest supplier of uh, acid in the world at that time, much more than Sandoz, the company that uh, manufactured it in Europe and released it only really for experimental purposes. But Owsley disseminated it widely. He was the grandson of a senator from Kentucky – and he was the founder of the Grateful Dead. Ah, all right. So you know the term acid rock?
1: Yes, yes.
2: Okay, it all begins with Ows- Owsley and the Grateful Dead, and then you get acid rock. So these were all characteristics of the 60s at the time that Selby, John Selby and I were so naively entrusting our our very selves to uh, Bernie Aronson and Humphrey Osmond at the New Jersey Neuropsych Institute.
1: So why did your co-author, John Selby, end up falling out with the Institute? He quit. He quit the program. Why?
2: Well, everything he was going through led him to a tremendous psychological crisis. I mean, they were manipulating everything in his life, including his relationship with his girlfriend. I mean, there, there is this underlying theme of the homosexuality uh, let's say, the the homosexual tastes of uh, um, one of the doctors at the Institute who was manipulating uh, Selby and, you know, trying to destroy his relationship with his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, he came to a, a – well, on the one hand, it was almost like a crack-up or a breakdown, but on the other hand – He came to realize the dark aspects of the Institute and what they were doing to him. And the fact that the Institute, at a time where LSD had been illegal at that point, Hmm. and officially, I think, officially, LSD research had been shut down by 1967, 68, thereabouts. But they still had a lot of uh, acid at the Institute.
1: Could I just jump in and and could you maybe contrast, compare... Dr. Timothy Leary's work with Dr. Humphrey Osmond because it sounds like Osmond had a, had a, a direct channel with the CIA
2: certainly the funding yeah. um, I think Leary did too by the way. I don't doubt it I don't doubt that uh, he had his company connections and then uh, double crossed them hmm. and then they went after him with a vengeance when he went his own way I'll get back to Timothy Leary in a moment, but one, I think one of the interesting things about the origin of this book, which took us decades to write, I mean, we started it a few years after we were in college. I was a student at the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies, and I began writing this with John Selby, and I had hoped that this would be my first film project after the, after the center it wasn't. <laughs> it fell by the wayside. I've made 10 other movies. This thing waited decades. We just couldn't finish it. And, you know, at, 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 as uh, we were finishing at Princeton, we had a break between us. John Selby and I, uh, we, we didn't talk to each other for a couple of years because I was still pro-institute, let's say. Hmm. And he had warned me to get out of there, and I had to listen to him. So it took a couple years for me to have sort of a change of heart and get back together with him and and really force him to tell his story, to get it written and in the process, tell mine and then put the two of them together.
1: Why didn't you see what he saw? Was it because you had entirely different experiences or were you being maybe
2: naive? I was naive, and it was earlier in the process for me. I hadn't gone through some of the really uh, negative and scary hypnotic conditions yet at that point. And I was just sort of a believer in the Institute's research. Uh, I I didn't see the negative side of it. I certainly didn't know about the CIA connection at that point.
1: So while you were microdosing LSD as part of the experiment at Princeton, Did you have a particularly profound or transcendental experience that you could share with me?
2: I don't know that it was transcendental, but he, uh, you know, under hypnosis, they would play with me in terms of uh, having me become uh, uh, other people. I think once they turned me into Bob Dylan for a few hours, (laughs) once they turned me into George Harrison, which is in the book, you know, that Mm -hmm. I was walking around the Institute as George Harrison. I mean, out out of my mind, I was under hypnotic condition. You don't remember it, you, it's, it's very real to you when you're experiencing it. And then they have memory erasure, they have, they have trigger words. Uh, they train you for quite a period of time to have a certain, it might be a nonsense word or term that becomes your trigger for very quickly going uh, under hypnosis.
1: And did you ever figure out yours or John's trigger word?
2: I think for, for John Selby, his trigger word, we figured out when we learned what it was, um, was something from um, the James Joyce book, Ulysses. <laughs> anyway. mm. uh, but transcendental. I mean, there, there, there were times when, um, when I had the equivalent of the psychedelic experience through deep hypnosis, Sometimes it was augmented by a very, very small dose of LSD. Um, That use of the very small dose of LSD, I think you mentioned it's becoming popular in Silicon Valley. It's very interesting that Steve Jobs credited LSD, his experience with that as having opened his mind to be able to make many of the advances that that he did that have helped change the world,
1: uh, I, I have no doubt that there is um, you know an upside you know, to micro dosing. Um,
0: Portable. Visit gcu.edu.
1: I want to get back to something you, you mentioned about trigger words and hypnosis. And oh. let me just ask you now, based on what you went through and what you now know about MKUltra. Yeah. Do you think it's possible using hypnosis, perhaps maybe not micro dosing, maybe, you know, massive doses, but do you think it's possible to program an assassin, for example?
2: Well, I know that they <clears throat> tried to do that. Has been books written about that? I've never read anything that indicates they they were, you know, uh, successful. I think it's interesting that the Unabomber. It's mm-hmm. been established. I think he was part of an MKUltra program at Harvard. Uh, yeah, yep, at Harvard. You know, they went for the Ivy League. They went for patients in hospitals. They went for prisons. I've got a list here in a book called Operation Mind Control of all the drugs they were testing at that time for the psychological purposes. And the list is almost 140 different drugs. It wasn't (laughs) just LSD. It was a long list. And yes, they were looking to do that. I'm not sure. You know, there's been speculation about Sirhan Sirhan. And I don't know that anything's been proven. I think that I think that what's really interesting is that there's been a great evolution, I think, in the thinking of, uh, let's say, the intelligence uh, departments, uh, that uh, at that time it was really the Wild West. They had these drugs that were new. They had these, these pretty far-out ideas, and they were choosing their guinea pigs wherever they could get them. You, know, you could answer an ad to rent an apartment. And uh, you'd go meet with somebody who was uh, CIA looking for guinea pigs in a mind control program. And they'd want to – they'd be looking for people that didn't have close family connections, that were loners, that wouldn't be noticed if they were missing for a period of time. You know, that went on. Today, I think everything has changed through – because of the digital age, the internet, the spying – these days every person carries on him the device that could enable others to spy on every aspect of his life. Hmm. N- you right. Know, in you other words, it's not needed. Uh, it's we- not needed. It's not needed. I I remember there was a phase after I had been at the institute. You know, I went back there in nineteen eighty eight, I saw that the institute had been shut down, the research department boarded up. Um uh, there was a guard there, kicked me off the property. Um, I wanted to see it after all that time. And, and soon after that, I ran into a fellow who claimed he was a British psychiatrist. He saw me reading a book about MK MKUltra, and he claimed to know a lot about it and a lot of what went on at the uh, Neuropsychiatric Institute. And I did a taped interview with him. One of the things he talked about back in around 1988... Was back then that they were encouraging everybody to buy their own tel- uh, telephone and have a telephone in every room. And he claimed that they were inserting little devices into the telephones so that they could listen in on any room. Uh, you, you know, it wasn't a matter of turning your phone on, your phones were always on. And that your own telephone was being used as a spy device. Right. And in those days, I thought, wow, that's pretty, you know. Do I believe that? You know, that's a pretty far out claim. Can he prove that? He opened the telephone and he was trying to show me where the transistor was for it. Oh,
1: how about the television? Everyone had a kooky neighbor on the block who swore up and down the TV was watching them. Then it turns out, it turns out, Paul, to be true.
2: Now it can. You know, I keep a little piece of tape over my uh, camera lens on my computer at all times and my other devices. I'm not interested in being spied on. But in fact, today they can know anything they want to know about you. Uh, True, you know. but the
1: other, the other goal of MK Ultra ostensibly, was to, to fracture the psyche of someone, compartmentalize yes. the mind so that they could use that person as a, as a mule for information, and, and they couldn't have access to the information that went into their own minds, but a controller at the end of the line, using some trigger word, I suppose, could access that information. I mean, I, I believe that that still
2: goes on. You know, probably it could. And, you know, for me, and I encourage those who are listening to um, to read Blowing America's Mind and, and really live this through reading the book as we lived it. It took me so long to really uh, completely uh, get over it. I think it's one of the reasons we didn't publish the book for decades. I mean, here it is, 2017, and we're talking about things that happened in the 1960s. Uh, we began writing this in the 1970s why a lot of it still reads fresh it has that the feeling of the electric kool-aid acid test because it's of, of a lot of it is of that period and when we could still capture it all but that's what took the decades i mean we waited until everyone was dead i mean Humphrey right. husband is, is gone bernard aronson there's a key scene in here uh, with the president of princeton university at that time robert f goheen who later became president nixon's ambassador to india hmm. And John Selby at that time was involved in a student committee on psychedelics. They put out a pamphlet working with one of the doctors at the infirmary about student use of psychedelics. And, uh, yes, there were warnings. I mean, at at no time – I want anybody to take from this – that I told them that this is safe. (laughs) I'm not advocating that people go trip, and I'm not saying it's safe. Different people have different reactions to these drugs. I have a friend who you know, smoked marijuana once, and I think one puff put him over the edge. Other people can take 500 micrograms of LSD, and it doesn't upset them psychologically. You can't predict. You don't know. But it was spreading at that time, and the university had to deal with it. And John Selby – there's a scene in the book of his conversation with President Goheen, uh, word for word as he could remember it. And it's sort of a clash of two generations and how they saw about – how they felt about this. Because John Selby was really encouraging President Goheen at that point to take acid <laughs> so that he would he, that he would know. He, he explained, you know, that the, the brain – that we're born with has reducing valves that prevent us from being flooded with too much information, too much uh, um And the psychedelic drugs act on the diencephalon. They act on that reducing valve. And that's why five minutes under a psychedelic can seem like it's five hours because you might normally have a 100 thoughts in five minutes minutes, but now you're going to have 10,000 right? or 10,000 sensations. It becomes overwhelming and for some people just more than they can handle. But what it does show you is that the world is much, much, much vaster than our senses let us see. We live behind a veil and those drugs do for a short period of time. Hopefully just a short period of time. They open that veil in a staggering way and show you the world uh, new and with a new kind of depth and detail. Short term, I get. How about a long term effect? Did it affect you long term? I think in my case, in my case, I I'm not sure I would have become uh, gone on to become a film producer had I not uh, gone through this.
1: Interesting, interesting.
2: I had always, and you see this in the book as I talk about my story. I had always wanted to do movies ever since I was a kid. I was doing amateur movies, but I never got any support for that as a profession from my family. Hmm. You know, my father was a scholar at Georgetown University. That's right. Yeah, he worked with John F. Kennedy, writing profiles and courage. He was professor to Bill Clinton in 1968. My mother was a school schoolteacher. Um, they felt that the sane life was you become a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a professor. You have a steady job. You don't go to Hollywood and say you're going to be a movie maker. Well, at some point, I abandoned my pre-medical studies at Princeton and let everybody know i am going to los angeles when i'm graduate when i graduate from here i'm i'm going to live the life that i always wanted to live i don't know what's going to happen but i'm going to throw my fate to the wind and it worked out for me richard it really really worked out for me i've i've made a lot of movies i've had incredible career you know from the transformers doing all the original transformers cartoons
1: that's right the star wars books
2: Star, six Star Wars books sold mm-hmm. millions of copies. The Transformers, 79 episodes, you know, seen by kids everywhere. And then between the movie Roswell and Jesus in India and the sci-fi boys and Marilyn Monroe Declassified and the Life After Death Project and Timothy Leary's Dead and Before We Say Goodbye and The Artist and the Shaman and Starry Night. I've made all these movies. And NBC Universal picked up half of them and they're out there you know, to the world, I've had my say. I've been able to communicate what I felt was important, whether it's about UFOs and extraterrestrials in Roswell or Life After Death, in uh, the movie The Life After Death Project, and my book, An Atheist in Heaven. So, wow, I've... You know, they say you can't have your cake and eat it, too. I had my cake. I ate it. (laughs) I ate it, too. Indeed. Let me just remind listeners,
1: Paul Jeffrey Davids is with us, the co-author, along with John Selby, of Blowing America's Mind, a true story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. I I wanted to ask you uh, about an experiment that was going on north of New Jersey, north and, uh, I guess, a little west, and that would be – that also involved –
2: are you I'm going to mention Montauk. Well, I was actually
1: going <laughs> to. I was going to mention Allen Memorial Hospital in Montreal and Dr. Ewan oh. Cameron, uh, yes. where
2: psychic driving.
1: Right, women uh, yeah. who uh, ostensibly were experiencing probably postpartum depression uh, were taken into the hospital, given massive doses. Unlike your experiment, which was micro doses, massive doses of of LSD and had their memories erased and their lives ruined. And this is not you know hocus pocus woo woo stuff this was settled out of court um you know damages years were later. paid years yes years, years later. later so we know this happened and of course cameron was funded by the cia and this was done with the the complicity of the canadian government um, you know
2: richard it's yeah. staggering they say there were 149 different experiments mm. under – uh, programs, separate programs under MK Ultra, at 86 different institutions. And that would be, as I said before, prisons, hospitals, universities, uh, and maybe other organizations. But uh, massive program where the intelligence agency felt they had the right to do this, why? Well, because Russia was doing it. You know, Russia was mm-hmm. studying this. But to feel that they can just take innocent civilians and use them as guinea pigs, it's what they did. These people were never told. They, they weren't recompensed except in a case like the one that you cited. And tremendous damage was done. It was in the days of Richard Helms as head of the CIA. I think he came in in 1964 and left in 1966. He had someone named Gottlieb working with him on supervising these experiments. This is Nazi stuff. Hmm. From oh, the beginning to end, it exactly, was Nazi stuff. Exactly,
1: exactly. Exfiltrated was, all the spies, the, the Nazi scientists and spies into the yeah. United States for that expressed purpose.
2: A project paperclip, they brought all the German scientists in, and then from then on, it became part of the texture of 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 who we are. And it was out of control. It was the Wild West. Now, when it was all discovered, let me just take a step back and say it was never supposed to be discovered. It was never supposed to be released. I think uh, Richard Helms had ordered everything burned. It was the church committee, wasn't it, where they revealed this? Uh, yeah, that was – what well, Ted Kennedy was involved, 1977. But – um. These things were never burned. Someone in the CIA uh, misfiled everything deliberately in boxes that were labeled as old financial documents that no one would be interested in. And there were boxes and boxes about all of these experiments. And they were stumbled upon, you know, about 10 years later. And it was when Stansfield Turner was head of the CIA. I mean, he said he found it abhorrent, Stansfield Turner, that this is Shocking to him, he never would want the CIA to ever be involved in anything like this again. These were his declarations. Ted Kennedy promising the American people never again. This is part of the past. Okay, maybe it's part of the past. Hmm, maybe. We big maybe we don't. We don't. Know. <laughs> well, we don't know. Well, officially,
1: officially, MK Ultra was supposed to be shut down in 1973. But uh, I mean, I have my doubts.
2: You know why why my book was rejected the first time around? There there was an editor who said, you know, you were part of this program in 1967, but MKUltra was shut down in, I think he said, 1963 or 1964, (laughs) so couldn't have been part of (laughs) MKUltra. It was nonsense. Nonsense. Yes, it went on. Yes, the names of the doctors we were connected with, including Carl Pfeiffer who had his affiliation with Princeton University. He had the the Princeton Brain Research Center. I mean, Richard, we waited until everyone died, (laughs) even Robert Goheen, the former president of Princeton. You know, the air was clear, and John Selby and I said, look, uh, we're not young anymore. Let's put this number one in our bucket list. Let's finish the book this year. Let's get it out there and just see what happens because... It's true. Let people know. I Most of my career, I never talked about this. People who worked with me on movies, they never knew that I was part of this. I wanted to leave this program really far behind me, and I'm quite sure I got over it. But this is the point in our life where we said, hey, you know, we've got to publish it, and I hope people are going to be there to um, – to read it because I want to share it with the world.
1: Paul, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Congratulations to you and John Selby on Blowing America's Mind, a true story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Richard.
1: Good night. Good night. That's quite a story. College kids as guinea pigs in the CIA's mind control experiments. I want to give you a heads up on what's coming up on Episode 5 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But first, let me ask you, have you heard about this free guide you can download that contains a list of online power tools to make you more efficient, secure, even boost your income? Best of all, this online toolbox guide is absolutely free. How do you get it? Simply visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com to grab your copy while they last. This guide has some of the very same online tools that successful business owners use every day, and each one is highly recommended. I know, there are websites out there that will offer a special giveaway like this, but then they want to stick you into a recurring program or some other deal. But this isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try, no credit card needed, no no cost whatsoever. Bright Biz is literally giving away this online toolbox guide completely free as a means of putting their best foot forward. But this is a limited time offer, so grab your free guide today and take your business and your income to the next level. Visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com to get your free guide to 36 online power tools. That address again, FreeBusinessToolbox.com. Coming up on episode 5 of Conspiracy Unlimited, President Donald Trump has made an historic decision to formally recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the U.S. Embassy to the Eternal City. Will these moves lead to a path to peace or further chaos in the Middle East? What's the future of America and Israel in these prophetic times? My guest, best-selling author of Gods and Thrones, Carl Gallops. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com Blow your mind.